Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Or if you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions talks to Erica M. Erica, previously known for her work as a TV host on Canada's Much Music, is now a leader with over a decade of experience as a CEO and speaker. She's had adventures like publishing brand YMC.ca and more recently, her own agency, M&Co. Erica's entrepreneurial career has proven her ability to reinvent, influence, and lead change in business. Over to Erica and Ian. Thanks for taking the time out on a Friday to, to have a chat with me and build out your, do a bit of a Q&A with you. I'm actually going to thank you because a lot of people don't appreciate my, my mind. I think differently than a lot of people. And so it's really great to meet a tribe of people who all think differently. And it's okay to be, I guess you'd call it a, div- a divide, divergent thinker. Someone described it to me this week as um, uh, intellectual dissidents. I've, I think dissident is fair for me. Intellectual is probably a stretch too far. Um, but like, I think that we don't have enough dissident minds that we don't have to be right about everything, probably wrong about a lot of things, but if it challenges people to think a bit differently and out of the normal orthodoxies, that's a good thing. I know that the image that I have in my mind, I think that my mother implanted in me when I was very young, is the lemmings follow each other off a cliff. And she always taught me to think for myself, like, do you want to follow those people? Are they making the right decision? So I think at a very young age, I was taught to think critically. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. Now it's sort of like it's a trait that is embedded in the way I think. I got the, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? I was like, if the water's deep, of course I would. <laughs> but that's okay because that's critical thinking. You've thought it through. Yeah. You, you've assessed the risk and then you've done it. Yeah. That's okay. to. It's okay to follow other people. As long as you consider the risk and the and the reward of it, yeah, then it's okay. You don't have to be against what everyone else is doing. It's just you need to make your own assumption to see if this is actually the right decision to make. I think so. Like, a lot of people think the contrary to someone who's always going against the tide or the crowd, but like that's actually not the case. No, they just, no. They just sometimes are. Yeah, but um, like to jump into this, you're kind of well known in Canada but like famous Canadians tend not to be famous Canadians outside of Canada so we've got like people who listen to this in Europe and the UK and the US like it'd be good to like tell 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 the people who listen to this who who Erica is and a bit about you and what you're not sort of notorious for north of the border so actually there are probably a lot of people of my vintage in the UK who do know who I was because much music used to be broadcast on Sky Channel for many years. So a lot of people may know, oh, I remember that girl way back in the 80s or early 90s. So I guess I'm most well-known or notorious for hosting much music, which was a spectacular live music channel, quite different from MTV. Uh, In fact, there's a new documentary that's circulating around the world uh, called 299 Queen Street West, which documents the history of much music, uh, which I played a small part of. 
essentially it was a renegade TV station where the on-air people were chosen because we actually had strong personalities. We were all obsessed with music and we had very strong opinions on music and life. And so we basically were given permission to talk live for four hours every day. And I did this for 10 years with no script and no director. So I learned to think on my feet, but I also learned to consider my opinion um, on many different topics because I was a cultural curator to a large degree. And I also was very influential for people of my generation, for young people look to me and the other people who did our job um, for what do we do next? You know, what do we like? How do we behave? So it was a, I've always kind of been in that role of, I guess, thought leader, if you want to put it in that kind of format. We'll come to what, what you did after that, but how did you decide what to talk about, what to fill the time with? Did you ever go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I'd done this instead? Like, how did you have the confidence to go and do that credibly for so long? At the beginning, I had just laser focus. I didn't even consider that people were watching me. I just was so lit up that I was actually able to talk about music and interview bands for a living. It's the greatest job on the planet. When I made mistakes, I learned that if you just kind of ignore them, if they were small, nobody really gives a shit. People appreciate authenticity. And I think that's something that we've lost in many ways, more so in corporate settings where everybody is desperately trying to be perfect. Even on Instagram right now, we're airbrushing our wrinkles, but people know that that's not really you. So if there's one thing that, um, that I'm known for is being unabashedly myself, mistakes, embarrassments, and I pick myself up and I keep on going. And I think people respect me for that. When you made a mistake, did you know you made a mistake? Sometimes, and you'll hear it today when I'm talking to you, I may stumble on my words. But who cares? That doesn't matter. It's not going to affect the content of what we're saying. Or if I tell you something and then I think about it and I go, actually, that's not right. I'll just say, actually, I want to change that. We're allowed to change our opinions and we're allowed to say things that come into our minds and then think about it and then change what we're thinking. Do you think like doing what you did then you'd be able to do today? I know that people love talking about like cancel culture or how there's so much more focus and critique on people in the media. Do you think you could have done that, what you did then in today's environment? I don't know. I, I don't know the cancel culture piece is real. Um, I tend to side uh, with people who are kind, etc. So there could be people who don't like that. I don't know. But I think it's worth speaking up when you deeply believe in something that it is the right thing to do. Uh, so I've continued to do that and some people will come at me and I always treat them with respect and I go, I appreciate your, your feedback. And it's the art of war. In the art of war, you use people's own weight to, to fight them in a way. And so if you, if you respond with something kind, it's really hard to come at you again. So they threw that through that kind of time. What what was the what's your sort of highlight? That's the thing you look back on and go, 
that was either a brilliant, the best memory, the best experience, or perhaps the biggest learning that you're the, the best piece of advice or the best piece of, um, yeah, learning that you gave to yourself going forward. Oh my God, Ian, don't get me started. That was 10 years of being a trailblazer live in front of a country. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I'll answer your first question, uh, which was the fondest memory or the most outstanding memory. Uh, is a surprising one, actually. When I was sent to Seattle in 93 to interview Kurt Cobain, I had no idea that that interview would be the most famous interview that he had ever done. And on top of that, one of the most famous interviews, rock interviews ever. Right now, it's on YouTube, which didn't exist when I was on Much Music. It's had a minimum of 10 million views. And people keep on um, quoting it, posting it on social little bits. There's a book that has actually transcribed the entire interview. And so now people can read the interview. And at the time, it was just another one of my many interviews. So I guess it's odd that that interview has become, in a way, my legacy, which, which basically... Um, pushed back the Canadian borders and people who are in the United States or the US, they'll know that interview. So I am most famous for the best interview with Kurt Cobain. I've watched that interview. It's a very, it's a, it's a fantastic interview. When you, when, you, when you were doing that, did you have any idea what you were doing? Not just in terms of what you were like, interviewing him on, but also like, did you have a sense of this is a really good interview? No, I didn't have that sense because it was somewhat uncomfortable. I. I went there with an agenda. I wanted to get a good interview from Kurt Cobain, knowing that he really distrusted mainstream media, as did a lot of, you know, rockers. I mean, I'd been in the business at that point for a decade. I've interviewed a lot of very difficult people. But my strategy always has been and continues to be to treat people who are, that's in quotation marks, important as regular people to look people in the eye and ask them questions that are, I don't know, more gentle and that reflect their personality. So I was very strategic um, when he walked in the hotel room because this was part of a junket where the band was moved from room to room and had to do, I don't know, 30 interviews a day. So I knew that they would be bored and burnt out. When he walked in the room, I said, hey, do you wanna do the interview in bed? or on the balcony. And he looked at me, he looked at me, he saw me, who's this crazy Jack? And he said, oh, uh, you know, on the balcony, I went, great, let's do it. I wanted him to see me as a person, not as some sort of talking head, if you will. And the first question I asked him was also on purpose. I went, so what are you reading these days? And he looked at me, what? And it really threw him off balance, which is what I wanted. It sort of connected probably with a different part of his brain where he actually had to think. Maybe his creative brain, maybe his personal side, which he doesn't reveal very often, but I started to unlock a piece of him. And the questions continued to be a mix of personal, but very respectful and obviously well-researched so he knew that I knew everything about him as a good researcher would or a good interviewer would, but I wasn't interested in the superficial. 
and he got it and he he really gave me a fantastic interview well, we'll put it in the show notes so people can go and watch it afterwards and like looking back on that what did you learn through that period of time because you then went from this kind of media career to a more of an entrepreneurial future how did you how did you t- tell us a little bit about that bridge from much music into where you went next and uh, and how what you learned from that media side of the world to the to the business side of the world well first of all i learned to be an incredible interviewer and listener to be an active listener is a great skill um i can just point out to you when you're interviewing me you're doing something called de- double-barreled questioning so you're asking me two questions at the same time and usually what happens is the person on the other end chooses which part of the question they want to answer so if you're interviewing someone in politics, for example, you you are not going to get the answers you want because they will be very choosy on which answer they want. So in other words, you can ask me that question, one question, let me answer it, and then follow up with the second one that you want, and you'll get better answers. So those are the kinds of things, just the techniques of interviewing, which you can apply to every aspect of your life, including when your teenager comes home from school and you want to ask him or her questions, to interviewing people for jobs. When I started to run my own business, I I had an ability to make people feel comfortable and tell me more about themselves so that I, I tried to understand who these people are. Do I want them to be part of my team? So that was very useful. But much music was very scrappy. Um, we were incur- we were forced <laughs> to do every part of the job. So I didn't have a glam squad. You know, I would put on my own makeup. I would put together my own outfit. So I built my own brand. I also built a, ha- a hat collection because I have really shitty hair. So I used to wear hats all the time, um, like Bananarama back in the day. So I... I started to um, design hats with young designers. And so I built a business in Canada selling hats across the country. So I started to learn about entrepreneurship there. I also was a songwriter. So I I wrote many songs and started a record label with another songwriter. So I, I was already dabbling in entrepreneurship, um, but it really... Um, it really kicked in when I started a little website called yummymummyclub.ca or ymc.ca, um, which again, I modeled after my time at Much Music. Much Music, I was living the dream because I was very passionate about music and demystifying celebrity. And for YMC, I was very passionate about speaking about the realities of modern motherhood. Um, most people treat moms like we're invisible or vapid or completely uninteresting. But when you think about it, most moms have had a career and they're taking time to raise their children. Most dads have business, you know, work in business, but nobody questions their, their uh, how interesting they are or their capabilities. So I started this quite feminist website, really. And I used all the skills that I learned at Much Music to be scrappy, to connect with people, to build community is one of my superpowers, to make people feel part of the um, content. Uh, Much Music and City TV also had a very unique strategy where they didn't hire broadcasters. They hired people 
who were good at a certain um, skill or topic and taught them broadcasting so that the on-air people were authentic in what they were able to talk about. Most broadcasters today are still, you know, just broadcasters and they read scripts, but not us. We were people who were versed in um, a variety of topics, but that was what I brought to YMC where I built a team of 50 content creators, all who were passionate about a particular topic and they owned it. So we became the largest online property in Canada and um, my business grew to about a million and a half uh, because I did what Much Music did, which was find brands that wanted to connect with a specific demographic and tell stories using the content creators. This was way before influencers or branded marketing. This was in 2006 and 2007. You're, you're a tastemaker throughout this story. How do you, how do you know, how do you get this feeling of that's, that's the thing, whether that's the Yoey Mummy Club, whether it's the hat thing, whether it's what to wear or what to talk about on much music, how did you, how do you hone that skill? I think you have to do something that I've since learned the word for, which is micro innovations. So I did it small with YMC. First, I had a TV show that was on Life Network and Discovery Health, and that ran around the world. You can still find it on Amazon. Can you believe it? For a dollar a show, they're still selling it. Um, but I realized at that point, oh, there's interest in this concept of motherhood um, and feminism, if you will, the realities of motherhood. And so I started a tiny little website by myself. I learned how to build a tiny website and I did 300 pages myself. And people started to come. That was just when Twitter, happy, the happy Twitter <laughs> um, launched and Facebook was quite big. And so I used social media to connect with other moms. It was slow. And the more positive feedback I would get, I took another step. Oh, I'd hire somebody. It's, oh, we're getting bigger. Oh, we just sold a program. Oh, this is working. So I think you never really know if something is going to work. That's why you have to start slowly and then listen. Listen to your audience. Listen to the end user. See how they're responding. They're going to tell you if it's working or not. And if it's working, ask. if it's not working, ask them questions. Survey people. Connect with people. Listen. It's the best skill. There's a really important thing in here of, of listening to people because it's not necessarily just what people are telling you. I, I don't want to go over the whole Henry Ford. If I ask people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. But like that, listening is a really important thing of what are they actually saying, but what are they actually telling me? What were they not telling me? What's 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 going on said in here? When you talk about questions, I think it's really interesting. One of the things I've always done around when I do research is I'm so bad at this. It's leaving silence and letting the other person fill in fill in fill in the blank. Tell me more about this sort of listening superpower that you have. What you just said is the greatest interviewing trick because when you ask someone a question and they give you their pat answer and you look at them and you go, right. And then the other person gets really uncomfortable and they keep on talking. And that's where the unscripted part 
comes out for sure. But I, I also think that you can listen without asking questions. So in social media, there are listening tools. So you get a sense of what people are talking about. But even before then, I was part of the community of moms. So we would just have conversations online. And then I would watch my friends, my online friends talk. And you'd see certain themes coming up or people would share a story. And then you'd see people reacting to that story and go, oh, that's a hot button topic. Pay attention to that. So it's really, I think part of it is become part of the community that you're trying to serve and immerse yourself in it. So you just become part of the conversation yourself rather than asking questions. You can listen without asking. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. When you went through this experience, were you, were you researching a lot? Were you doing it off of gut feel? Were you doing it off of instincts? Were you having, did you have people around you to help you? Like, tell, tell me a bit more there would say that initially it was gut because there was nothing like what I was doing. <laughs> I was the first. So I was just making shit happen and making it up. I was like, for example, I would have brands come to me and say, hey, we see that you're building quite an audience. We'd love to give you a mop to give away to your mommies. And I would say, what's your budget? And they were like, what? And I realized that I had to monetize my business, but I had, there was no plan for that because at that point, legacy media was still owning the advertising market. But I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to use my team of content creators to tell the brand story in an authentic way? Because for example, I would get all these pitches from brands where we're like, Jane is a soccer mom. Jane likes to feed her kids orange juice. It was so patronizing and dumb and completely unappealing to me because I am not Jane. I'm Erica. There is no one else like me. How can you categorize me like that? Besides, I have 50 other writers, none of whom are Jane. They're Lisa, Sarah, Sharon. You know what I'm talking about. So I came up with this, with this idea of getting all those people to tell their stories and embed the brand in it in an authentic way. And I spent months pitching brands on this idea and they all said no. Now I use my name, I was famous, Erica M. So they would take my call. I would say, I started this new concept and they'd go, that's really interesting, but no because it scared them. They didn't understand it. And as you know, most people who don't understand something immediately say no because they don't have the courage to try something a little different. Three months into it, a woman named uh, Samantha Kemp Jackson from an agency said, whoa, that's interesting. I have a client named Fuji. I'm gonna take your whole package. Fantastic. So my team, did the project. We put together a case study 
And I started to call those same people again who all had turned me down. And slowly, people started to say yes. And eventually, it took five years, but the business became a million-dollar business. And it was all run by moms from their kitchens way before there was Zoom, way before anybody worked virtually. We built, and I did it with them. I didn't make it all up. I just, I just kind of became part of a team of women who felt very empowered. We all had purpose. We There was a reason that we were doing it. It was to change the storyline of motherhood and to empower women across the country. So everybody was invested in this and we just made it happen. So how did it feel being told no? It was frustrating, um, but I'm persistent, as you know, Ian. I don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was knocking on your door. Ian, Ian, I want to talk to you, Ian. <laughs> fine. All right. I'll talk to you, Erica. But isn't that, that is the difference between someone who is successful and not successful in life is that you have to have the courage and the tenacity to ask for what you want. And when you get turned down, because inevitably you will be rejected like daily, you have to have the confidence to say, hmm, they just don't get me yet. Or as my ex-husband so wisely said there's a seat for every toilet i thought you'd like that one you say that as i take but a sip of water it was not- perfectly timed <laughs> <laughs> but not everybody will understand your brilliance and you may actually not be onto something so if someone tells you no i also su- suggest to people to say fair enough can you tell me why i need to learn i need to improve Is there something that is not meeting your expectations? Or do you have a better way of doing it? Or can I get back to in three months when I shift my ask? It's all about making connections. Asking isn't always about getting yes. It's about starting a conversation or a relationship. I think the the idea of no is a temporary thing, right? But this idea of you you get someone says no to a sales pitch or an idea or an ask for a phone call. Some people take that as a, I can't go back and ask again. And I think that's like a bit, as a huge myth that we have. Yes, people are afraid of being vulnerable and people take things personally, but it has nothing to do with you. For example, the person that you're asking may not feel well that day. The person that you're asking may not reply to your email because their email could have been broken and they didn't get back to you. We all make up these stories in our heads like, oh my God, they don't like me. It's no good. But part of being a professional is closing the loop and going back even if you don't want to actually hear the final no you need to do it so you can move on or change what you're doing i've heard of people will cry about it when they get a no they um they like write a little tick next to it and they're like well i probably need 10 of them to get to the yes so i've now had a i'm getting really close and it's a sort of weird little mental hacks that people have to get to get through that those challenges that is brilliant i mean think about it I cold called people and I was famous. So people were taking my calls for three months, hearing no every day until that one person said yes. And even after she said yes, most people said no until they started to see the success that other braver people did. 
And then they jumped on. And my prices were higher at that point, by the way. That always helps. <laughs> so <laughs> as you went through this so, process, as you went through, how did you cope? How did you, how did you like, what was your sort of you, thing for mental sanity? Like you, you did you, with Yummy Mommy Club, your whole thing? Um, or was it, or did you have things that just helped you manage that challenge of entrepreneurship? Uh, no, it was uh, pretty lonely, to be honest, because I, I managed a team of probably 60 people at a, at one point and more because we had the YMC community. So there was probably 500 moms or families who signed up to each who had Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts. Instagram hadn't happened yet. And so they were all promoting our um, our paid content and they were all getting paid. So there was a really great ecosystem. But it was lonely because I was suddenly responsible for you know supporting a lot of people. Um, and I didn't want to disappoint people. But I also was quite close with a lot of the the team like I made them part of it and I asked them their opinion all the time on making big decisions ultimately it was me that made the final decision but I included them in it and they were like my sounding board again keeping them invested I I didn't hide things from them so they knew where we stood all the time I just was really straight with them in these days, let's use the language, I was transparent. So um, they always knew where they stood. I remember a few people would say to me, like, are you mad at me? Because I, I hadn't gotten back to someone. I was like, dude, if I'm mad at you, I will tell you. If I don't get back to you, it's probably because I'm dying over here. I have so much work to do. I promise you, I will never play mind games with you. You're doing a great job. Don't worry. You know, that kind of thing. But really, it did overtake my life for, um, well, it's I'm still running it, but it isn't it doesn't run my life now. But it for two reasons, because I was part of a community, it was also my social life. I did an amazing thing for me, which was I built my business and built a community of like-minded women. <laughs> so they many of them don't work for me anymore, obviously, and they're all my really good friends. I think that's really important. People lose that of they try and separate um, entrepreneurship or work and friendship, and actually, friendship and work and friendship and entrepreneurship are often like deeply intertwined, and that's not a bad thing. Well, entrepreneurship is my hobby. Creating is my hobby, and when I work with people, it's a genuine relationship. I am a full-on opportunist, but I've redefined what that means. Typically, an opportunist means someone who stands on the shoulders of others to get ahead or takes it, takes advantage of people to get ahead. But for me, an opportunist is someone who finds mutually beneficial scenarios where both party wins. It's a win-win situation. And therefore, you can build partnerships with all kinds of people. And everybody feels fulfill fulfilled. And if it doesn't work, it's okay because we tried and it may not work for me it may not work for the other person but there's there's no resentment no one feels taken advantage of things don't always work out but the intention is let's work together on something we'll play it forward a bit more so you can like turn this into a bit more of either, like we're in the agency world doing more like advice and consulting kind of work after off the back of your mommy club so what happened was we had so much interest 
in working with with us that we expanded so that the website YMC was kind of like honey for the bees. And the bees were two different species. They were the audience of moms who uh, read all of our content, but it also attracted a lot of our clients. And our job was to create content in partnership with brands. Sometimes it would sit on our properties, but it would sit other places as well because we were so knowledgeable about marketing to moms. So we would create content like and white label it for them. It was it was great. It still is. It's a brilliant model. So in terms of that that cohort, because you've been doing it for a while, how has motherhood really shifted from when you started to today? Motherhood has shifted and so has technology shifted. And I think the two are intertwined because the way that moms uh, connect now online is very different from when I first started. And it's a challenge. It also is, I was talking to someone who is in the same space as, as me. She started seven years ago. And she, like me, started because she was very passionate about connecting to motherhood and then started to find ways to monetize her brand. And now um, her kids are almost 10, which I think is always the tipping point for mothers. That's when moms stop calling themselves moms first and they start reverting back to women. But at, when you first have kids, you're a mother first. But when kids turn around 10, the moms start leaving my newsletter. They don't look at mom-centered content as much. So for those of us who are in the business of motherhood, you are constantly having to backfill your email and find new people because they don't stay with you for years and years because their interests shift. Because motherhood is a series of, um, I guess like it's like psychographic, right? So there's it's not how old these moms are. It's these are moms of babies. These are moms of toddlers. These are moms of school-age kids. These are moms of teenagers. And these are moms who are free and, and they're empty nesters. But there's, there's different stages. And so we would create content based on the stage of the mom um, and the brand that it might appeal to. And I guess you then have moms who have a kid who's six and a and a newborn, and that then makes it even more complicated and interesting, right? Well, yes. I mean, you would they're they're interested in both stories, but they're probably less interested in the baby stuff because they're already experts to some degree. If you have one child, you're different than a new mom. New moms are they're they are hungry for information. They're hungry for connection for new mothers, like because. When you become a mom, everything in your life changes. Every single thing, your relation, every relationship, your relationship with your body, with your partner, with your parents, with your work, with your mirror, everything changes. It's interesting. Some uh, this is not a mom thing. This is a, a new dad thing. But I saw into a friend of mine. His kids are a few months old. I was like, "Oh, how are things?" You know, it's like you're looking great. And he's like, "I'm." He's like, "You know what? I really enjoy. I'm singing to my child." And he's like, I would never have thought I would end up doing that. Um, but like it's he, it, it sort of opened up a whole new piece of his personality that he didn't really know he had. It's I think life-changing. that's a really interesting thing it's that like, I don't have the empathy for because mm-hmm. I'm not a parent. But like this idea Although, of people who deeply understand it, have the curiosity around it, 
and then can work around people who are like at the end of the day brands are trying to make pop products that moms want love need whatever it might be the irony of the situation is now i'm an empty nester my kids are 23 and 20 so i no longer am connected to new moms so when you ask what are new moms into these days i can't tell you the answer the same way that i used to which signals to me i need to get out of the business which is why I sold my business to Toys R Us Canada last year because I'm not the right person. I can run the business. I understand the uh, logistics of connecting brands with the right storytellers. I can read the great stories. I know how to do all of that, but my heart is not there anymore. And because I've had a career, which has always been take what you love and then turn it into a career, I'm about to close that door. What's the next door then? Well, Ian, isn't that the question? How do you, so for me, for example, yesterday, uh, I was brought into a media company to speak to their staff about leadership. And it was like, I walk out of there all lit up. So does the, the audience. When I asked, there was about, in this group, probably around 50 people in the room. And after my talk, there was a Q&A. And I think almost every single person asked me a question in the group, live, like in the room. Everybody felt seen. Everybody had a different question about a different part of my talk. And everybody was not, because when you talk and you answer someone's question, you can tell if it's resonating. People just automatically nod their heads if it connects and they lean forward. There's just body language that you get used to. People were just in that room. Nobody wanted to leave. So that is, you know, I, I do lead by my heart, not my gut. The difference, by the way, when you say my gut is telling me, that's your fear speaking. Your fear lives in your gut. Your heart is more where your uh, enjoyment, your joy lives. And so I am looking for different opportunities that bring me joy, that light me up. And when I walk into rooms like that, I know that is the right place to be. It's a, it's a very different level of advice to get from you versus some bloke in a suit who makes PowerPoint slides. Yes, I'll pick on management consultants. It's one of my favorite hobbies. But I think that that level of experience and that story that you have behind you and the way that you tell it is so much more you could you could say you could say something i can violently disagree with but I, it's still better in advice and more interesting than it is to get something that's kind of bland i agree with that and also there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with what i have to say because what you want to do is be in rooms where people know how to listen actively and have a conversation. So not everyone agreed with what I was saying last night, which is what part of the questions were. They would say, so based on that, are you saying this or what would happen in this situation? So we were having a conversation. And again, I kind of feel like I'm a teacher. And in fact, there's a thing that psychologists say that if you go back to what you wanted to be when you were five years old, for example. Do you know, do you remember when you were five? 
you were some kind of a shit disturber for sure. But what what um, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were five? When I was, I think between the age of five and probably still today, I think I wanted to be Michael Palin. I think I wanted to be like able to travel. Michael Palin in the in his realm of traveling around the world, not so much his Monty Python thing. Um, but like he was my hero. So I think that I think why you got paid to be on television and travel and see places that you didn't normally get to see. Like the idea of getting on a train and going through the middle of Africa was always more way way more interesting to me than I know going on a two week package vacation to Spain or Mexico. He also was paid to think differently and talk. Yeah. And here you are. You are you're doing that. Um, in many ways, and I know that you've traveled an awful lot, and you've lived in you've lived in airports. I know, so you are literally doing that. That what that person was saying, uh, what psychologists say, is that there's something that we're all born with an affinity, and we know at a very young age what lights us up. So for me, I wanted to be a teacher. I used to literally tie my sister up, and I had a big chalkboard. And I, and I taught her how to read. She's three years younger than me. She had no choice. Um, I taught her how to read. And also, from a very young age, I wanted to be an actor. And when you think about what I do right now, it is exactly combination teacher and actor. I hired a kid once. And I said, like, why do you want to be a consultant? Why do you want to work here? And he just went, well, I'm really passionate about acting, but I'm not good enough to be an actor. And I just figured what are the skills that acting's good for and where can I apply them? And I thought management consulting, I was like, I have to hire you right now. You're so, that's that's good. And he, he, he turned out to be a great, he's, he's fantastic at it. So it's sort of interesting. He also knows himself, which is something that you want to, you know, you want to look for when you're hiring people is you want people who are, you know, they're pretty bold. It's a pretty bold thing to say, but he's like, this is me. I am telling you authentically, this is who I am. And that's way better than someone who goes, well, I really love consulting, <laughs> you know, like something which is, no, you don't. I also gravitate to people whose mouths work faster than their brains. They're still, they're still smart, but because um, I have this affliction if my mouth works faster than my brain, I feel like I need to go find other people that I like that too. <laughs> I want to ask you around a few questions that will give me a bit more of your personality. What does your like, dream travel companion look like? What a good question. You could even ask Kurt, Co you could have asked Kurt Cobain that question. That would have been great. Um, my dream companion would be someone who is, uh, who likes to do things like adventure physically, but nothing scary. So I don't like doing things that will physically terrify me, like roller coasters. I'm not comfortable with that, but I do like to explore. I'm also independent, yet I like when someone is there most of the time. And I love to read and be quiet and think, go to nice restaurants and have long conversations. I don't want to meet random strangers all the time. I'm not comfortable with that, probably because my job for the last 15 years has been to talk to strangers who come up to me on the street all the time. So I'd prefer to be a little bit anonymous. That's interesting. What well, What's the destination that's in your mind as you as you think through that companion? Oh well, at that particular moment, I was thinking of Italy, but you know, of course, come on, it's hard not to pick Italy. Exactly. 
So it's kind of typical, but I have not traveled a lot in since before COVID. Um, and because partly being an entrepreneur and having a business that really depended on me, it was always hard to leave. So I always had to pick destinations where there was really good Wi-Fi because I'd be carrying around my computer and or my phone and answering emails along the way. Um, so Italy would be one of those places that is uh, that could sustain that. It's a great choice. How about your interior design aesthetic? How would you describe it? It is essentially non-existent. I lit. I I live in my head. I often don't even see my surroundings. Sometimes when I put on my clothes, I just drop them wherever I am, and then a day later I go, "Oh God," because I. I literally live in my head. I have a brain that doesn't turn off and I don't really care about stuff so much. I'm not a big consumer. I'm, I just like to be happy, comfortable, warm. And, um, but the external world doesn't really matter to me that much. It's, it's not the answer I expected from you, but I like it. Now, why is that? I, I kind of, I had in my head that you being a bit of a tastemaker and having like a sort of specific like aesthetic that's your kind of, your kind of thing. I don't know why I had that in mind though. Nope. I, I mean, I have to dress a certain way because there are expectations on the other end to look professional or to look attractive or a, whatever the moment requires. But... I personally don't give a shit. <laughs> I really don't. I just, I have a cottage. I walk around in sweatpants and t-shirts and the cottage is just very quaint and comfortable. That's, to me, I just like to be around people and have meaningful conversations. I don't care what you look like and I don't care what I look like and I don't care how fancy our situ our settings are. Um, I just wanted to be real down to earth. Now I'm getting you better. Okay. I'll ask you my last question, which is becoming a bit of our like, signature question, but on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? I would say five. Why five? Five, because I function very well in the traditional world, but I feel uncomfortable 50% of the time because I don't fit in, in a lot of places, but I do fit in 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 many groups of people and i tend to be someone with a strong opinion and i tend to be the person who may change how people think hopefully for the better i actually have a philosophy philosophy of life which is my purpose in life is to use my voice to make the world a better place and i do it in a variety of ways sometimes you have to be not sometimes, you often have to think very differently um, in order to make an impact, but I'm confident enough to use my voice and to understand when I've overstepped and when I've understepped. That's the more important one. And But I, I can't ever do it alone. So if you overstep and you alienate people, nothing nothing happens. So sometimes you need to understep and get, you know, a group of people who start to believe in how you see the world. And then together you get a little louder and you make a bigger difference. It's not, 
See, I don't have ego. It's not about me. It's about the end product, always. As long as my involvement can make that thing better, I'm good. Is that weird? I think it's a very good description of your of how you uh, scored your weirdness. Like, I, I think I change my score all the time, but I think it's, in, I, it's the justification that I think is way more interesting than the number people give themselves. Thank you so much for having a chat with me, Erica. This has been fantastic. Thank you. I could talk to you for... all day, but... Uh, yes, yes. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.